Hello, listeners, and welcome to Re-Release Mondays. Here's the re-release of the 2021 Pfizer-funded series, Emerging Mechanisms of Action in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Alopecia Areata in Children, with Dr. Britt Craiglow and Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio as program chairs. This is the third of three webinars titled Alopecia Areata, The Future, with Dr. Rodney Sinclair. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance special series, Emerging Methods of Action in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Alopecia Areata in Children. This is our third webinar in the series, The Future. I'd like to start by thanking Pfizer for supporting this program with a grant. PEDRA and the program chairs are solely responsible for the content and the presenters this evening. Your program chairs are um, Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio, Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine and Director of Research in the Section of Dermatology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Dr. Britt Craiglow, Adjunct Associate Professor of Dermatology at Yale, and she sees patients in private practice in Fairfield, Connecticut. Hello, everybody. Um, it's really an honor to have Dr. Rodney Sinclair with us tonight. Um, well, actually it's morning for him. And I was just thinking it's really fitting that he's doing this talk, um, you know, entitled the future because he actually literally is in the future for us being so far ahead, um, over there in Melbourne. So, um, Dr. Sinclair is a professorial associate at the University of Melbourne, and he is director of dermatology at the Epworth Hospital. He also directs the Sinclair Dermatology Institute for Research, Education, and Clinical Trials. He is sort of a king of alopecia areata. He has done so much work in this space. He's a fierce advocate for patients. Um, I've gotten to know him over the past few years and have really learned a lot from his knowledge and expertise. And I think about you, Rod, very often because I, you really, you taught me about oral minoxidil and um, I'm so grateful for that because that uh, along with Jack inhibitors has really changed my practice a lot. So um, tonight, Dr. Sinclair is going to talk to us about some of the clinical trials that are happening in alopecia areata, which is very exciting. We're getting closer and closer to hopefully an on-label indication. Now, I think only one of them includes pediatric patients, but as we know, we usually are, you know, we will follow. So um, hopefully it will stimulate a good discussion. And um, again, thank you so much, Dr. Sinclair, for, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Britt. Uh, and thank you for that very kind introduction. And uh, certainly, I have been involved in alopecia areata research for a long time, back in the, in the old days when we didn't really have that much to offer, and we really had to wing it. Uh, with every consultation, every patient who walked in the door, you didn't really know how the consultation was going to end, where you were going to go, and it was very hard to give any pa patients much confidence that we had the answers for their, their problem. But fortunately, I think today we're just starting to see some, some breakthroughs that allow us to be a lot more confident with our patients, a lot more optimistic. And, uh, and that's what I'm going to share to you, share with you today, which is some of the, the trial data and the future for alopecia areata. So, so being in the future, so today in Melbourne, Australia, it's actually the Thursday, the 17th of June. So I'm a little bit ahead of you. So that's why I'm in the, I'm in the future. 
So this is just a list of my disclosures, and I've been uh, a consultant for a number of companies, as well as on advisory boards, speakers, and investigator in a number of clinical trials. Now, I probably don't need to give all of you too much background in alopecia areata, other than to say that it's one of the most prevalent autoimmune uh, diseases. It affects men and women equally, and it affects all ethnicities equally, and it's a common cause of paediatric hair loss. Now, alopecia areata is not just cosmetic. There are serious, or there's a serious associated psychological morbidity. It affects social and emotional development. Suicide, although reported, is rare, um, and it's reported in children with alopecia areata, and in particular, it's young boys with rapid onset alopecia areata who represent a particular at-risk group for self-harm and psychological distress. And the reason for that is that boys with short hair are less able to conceal their hair loss than young women with long hair who can conceal sometimes 30% or 40% hair loss by tying it back in a ponytail. So my brief today is to talk about the targeted treatment approaches. And the JAK-STAT pathway is the intracellular second messenger system that transmits the signal following cell surface receptor activation to the cell nucleus. So the JAK inhibitors, or the JAKI, uh, they target, uh, they're small molecules, they're taken orally, and they simultaneously target multiple cytokines that are involved in the pathogenesis of alopecia areata, and they're able to target those cytokines in a selective manner. So the way in which it works is that the circulating cytokine here in the red binds to and dimerizes the transmembrane receptor. The cytoplasmic Janus kinases are then activated by phosphorylation and they're activated jacks then phosphorylate the stats that peel off, dimerize as they float across the cytoplasm, enter the nucleus through the pores and then attach to the DNA where they regulate gene transcription and the production of proteins from that cell nucleus. And so the story of JAK inhibitors starts here with, uh, with Brit and, uh, and Brett, uh, Brit Craiglow and Brett King, who back in 2014 uh, described the first report of successful treatment of alopecia areata in a patient with psoriasis who was treated with the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib. And this patient with psoriasis uh, affecting his body and scalp and, uh, and hair loss underwent treatment with tofacitinib, which is a JAK1-3 inhibitor, and over the course of eight months experienced complete scalp hair regrowth, in addition to regrowth of the eyebrows and eyelashes. Now, a year later in 2015, there was another report with uh, baricitinib of a 17-year-old man with both alopecia areata and Candle syndrome, who was enrolled in a clinical trial for Candle syndrome, where he was treated with baricitinib. And for those of you who don't remember what Candle syndrome is, it's chronic atypical neutrophilic dermatosis with lipodystrophy and elevated temperature. And that's a, a monogenic auto-inflammatory syndrome, which is associated with highly dysregulated interferon pathway because of the shared um, dysregulation of interferon in alopecia areata. It was uh, interesting to, to see the regrowth in this patient um, over the course of the, of the treatment. In 2015, there was also a report with ruxolitinib, another JAK1-2 inhibitor, 
and that induced reversal of alopecia universalis in a patient who was receiving the ruxolitinib for central thrombocythemia. And by 2016, we started to get a number of case series. There was one on tofacitinib, another one on oral ruxolitinib. And what you can see in these photographs is the, the A photograph is the before, and the B photograph is the after, and you can see multiple patients getting significant regrowth with the oral ruxolitinib. And as we get new uh, JAK inhibitors introduced into the clinic, we're also starting to get additional observations of hair regrowth. And this is a patient with Crohn's disease who was being treated with, fil with filgotinib uh, for his Crohn's disease, who coincidentally had alopecia areata and experienced complete regrowth, not only of his scalp hair, but also his beard and his eyebrows and eyelashes. And so once we moved from isolated case reports to case series, the pharmaceutical industry started to get interested and we started to see some randomized controlled trials involving the JAK inhibitors in alopecia areata. Now, because the JAK inhibitors are small molecules, uh, they've been tried as topical agents such as cream. So ruxolitinib was tried as a cream. And then we've also seen trials with uh, two of the Pfizer medications, ritlacitinib, which was originally called PF1600, and brepacitinib, which was originally PF0841, ruxolitinib, as we mentioned, and baricitinib have all undergone randomised controlled clinical trials. And when we do the clinical trials, the primary outcome measure is scalp hair regrowth over the period of the trial. And the way we score the scalp hair regrowth is the SALT score. And SALT is an acronym for severity of alopecia tool. And what we're trying to do is get a patient who's got total hair loss, which we would call a SALT of 100, and get them to regrow. So they get complete regrowth to what we'd call a SALT of zero. And that improvement from baseline so the end of the study is what we call a SALT 100 improvement in their hair density. Now, I was uh, in Europe back in 2018 and we were able to travel and I presented the, the data from the, the phase 2A randomized placebo controlled study, looking at the efficacy and the safety of two Janus kinase inhibitors in a 24 week study in alopecia areata. And at the time of that presentation in September, 2018, these medications were still numbers, they didn't have a name, but now of course we know those medications as ritlacitinib and brepacitinib. And so this study, which was called Allegro, was a phase 2A randomized double-blind multi-center study with an initial 24-week uh, primary efficacy endpoint followed by a couple of extension periods. And the patients enrolled in that study were all adults aged 18 to 75, and they were randomized to receive either ritlacitinib, brepacitinib, or matching placebo. There were a number of secondary endpoints in addition to the, the, the mean change in SALT score, and the secondary uh, endpoints were the proportion of patients who achieved a 30% improvement in their SALT score and also greater improvements as well. So in this particular study, 142 patients were enrolled and 115 completed the trial. And so with respect to patient withdrawal, there were three withdrawals in the ritlacitinib group, 11 in the brepacitinib group, and 13 in the placebo group. Now, in the brepacitinib group, the, the withdrawals were mainly due to adverse events, and they tended to occur during the maintenance therapy. In the placebo group, the withdrawals tended to be patient-initiated. Again, they occurred in the maintenance period, and they were mainly due to lack of efficacy 
of the medication as to why the patients withdrew from the trial. Now, the patients in each of the three groups in that trial were well matched for age, sex, race, racial um, uh, disease duration, their baseline salt, and the proportion of patients who had either alopecia totalis or alopecia universalis. And the study design was a little bit um, unusual or was but had a, a, an interesting aspect to it. And that was that the patients received a loading dose for the first four weeks. And so for the ritalocitinib, they received four times the maintenance dose. And for the brepacitinib, they received double the maintenance dose for the first four weeks of the trial, which was called the induction phase. And then they went into the 20-week uh, the maintenance phase. And the data was collected over the, the 24 weeks. And this graphic, I think, is quite good in terms of showing what uh, the patient response group was. And if you look at the middle group, the middle, the middle blue man is the ritlacitinib man, and that's the drug that's progressed to the phase three clinical trials. But what you could see in the top line is that 50 in 100 people or 50% of people achieved a SALT 30 improvement, an improvement of their SALT score by 30 points, or is SALT is a surface area, so there was a reduction in the surface area of affected alopecia um, by 30%. We also found that 25% achieved a SALT-90. And SALT-90 improvement is what we consider a really clinically meaningful result. These are patients who can, we may still have one or two patches of hair loss, but they can easily disguise it. Those residual patches could be managed with intralesional triamcinolone or other modalities. And these are patients whose life pretty much gets back to normal. In contrast, there were 30% of patients who had no regrowth or who lost more hair during the course of the study. Or, you know, interestingly and, and fortunately, um, the, the study also looked at eyebrow and eyelash growth. And what they found is that 60% of patients had eyelash growth and about 50% of patients had eyebrow growth. Now, the results with the ritalocitinib were not quite as good as the brepacitinib. Brepacitinib, only 10% of patients had no hair uh, regrowth or lost more hair. 64% of patients had a salt 30 improvement, which was the primary endpoint, and about 34% of patients were getting a reduction in their SALT score by about 90, um, which was the meaningful result. Now, the side effects experienced by the people in the study are important, and the blue man, the ritlocitinib man, uh, no one had serious side effects. Two people stopped taking the ritlocitinib because of side effects, but no one left the study because of the ritlocitinib. So the people who stopped the treatment continued in the study and no one left the study because of abnormal blood test results. In contrast, in the brepacitinib, two people did have serious adverse events, which was rhabdomyolysis, which is a muscle condition that when severe can cause kidney damage. And that's something that we see with a number of the JAK inhibitors. But it's also something that we see in the normal population, particularly after people do lots of exercise. So they get this elevation in their CK. Um, in the clinical study uh, where the um, importance or the clinical relevance of the, the rhabdomyolysis was uncertain, four people uh, stopped taking preposidinib because of side effects, two people left the study because of side effects, and, uh, and three people left the study because of abnormal blood test results, which were subclinical and, and weren't associated with any uh, visible side effects. Now, this is a, a efficacy, uh, this is a patient who showed a SALT-90 uh, improvement and was treated with ritlocitinib. 
And this is one who was treated uh, with brepacitinib, showing the improvement over the course of 24 weeks. Again, a SALT-90 improvement. And you can see that not only did the scalp hair regrow, but um, the eyebrows and eyelashes regrew as well. And what you see at week 12 is often the pattern that you see in the alopecia, that they get pretty much complete regrowth over the scalp. They're left with a couple of circular patches that are recalcitrant initially, and then over time they fill in. Now, these slides are put up there pretty much just to show you the trend over time. So this was a 24-week study, but the, the orange bar at the top is the brepacitinib, the blue bar is the ritlacitinib, and what we're seeing is at the end of the 24 weeks, there's still a, a, a trend over time to continued improvement. So there was a suggestion that if the trials were continued for longer, those percentages would increase further. And that's both in the uh, SALT 30 improvement, but also the, the SALT 90 improvement as well. In terms of adverse events, they were similar in all of the, the groups. Um, and so that presentation that I did in, uh, in Paris, I think it was, uh, they were the first results from a randomized control study investigating a JAK inhibitor in alopecia areata. And the importance of that was that was pretty much the first time that a pharmaceutical industry had sponsored a randomized control trial done to the standards that would be necessary for a drug to achieve registration with the FDA. So prior to that, all the treatment for alopecia areata had largely been anecdotal. The treatments that we used in the clinic were based on case reports, small case series, the occasional trial, but none of the trials had actually been conducted to the standard that would be expected for a drug to become registered through the, the FDA. And the conclusion of this study was that the treatment with both ritlacitinib and repacitinib uh, over 24 weeks was efficacious and generally well tolerated with the main warning or caution with the, the brepacitinib being the elevation of the, the creatinine kinase enzyme, uh, particularly in patients who were doing strenuous muscle exercise. Shortly after that presentation in September 2018, Concert Pharmaceuticals released their top-line results from their Phase 2A study looking at deuterated ruxolitinib. And that study was a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled study, again in adult patients, and again in patients with moderate to severe alopecia areata. So the definition was patients needed a, a SALT severity score of 50 or 50% hair loss in order to go into the trial. In that particular trial, they looked at three doses compared to placebo over 24 weeks, but it was a dose escalation study in, in, done in cohort stage. And so the results that they reported at that stage just related to the four milligram and the eight milligram cohorts. And their primary endpoint was a 50% relative reduction in their SALT score between baseline and week 24. So they were looking for a 50% overall improvement in their alopecia areata. Now in this study, there were 104 patients enrolled and 101 had completed uh, that phase of the study and they were still enrolling the, the 12 milligram dose at the time that they reported the, uh, the top line results. And again, you can see that the three groups were well matched uh, to, according to age, gender, race, and ethnicity. And they were also well matched for disease duration SALT score of baseline and the proportion of patients who had either alopecia totalis or alopecia universalis. Now this was their result page. And what you can see is that the response in the placebo group 
was about 8.6%. In the four milligram twice daily group, it was 21%. And in the eight milligram group, about 47% of the patients were getting a 50% or more improvement in their alopecia areata. And again, when you look at the trend over time, again, this was a 24-week study, you can see that there was a suggestion that there would be continued improvement if the study went on for longer. When you look at the proportion of patients who uh, achieved a SALT 90 score, which is the, the ones on the right, you can see that the only patients who achieved a greater than 90% improvement in the SALT score were the ones on the higher dose of the eight milligrams twice daily. There was improvement in the other patients, suggesting that perhaps if you went on longer, they'd get continued improvement, but the, the major clinically significant improvement was only generally seen in the patients on the higher dose, not in the lower dose, and it didn't occur in the placebo. Again, if you look at the results over time, you can see that they get partial regrowth at about 12 weeks and it gradually fills in over the 24 weeks. And that regrowth also occurred on the eyebrows and eyelashes. In terms of adverse events with the ruxolitinib uh, used in the concert trial, um, there were no serious adverse events. Uh, there was uh, and the, the hematology events, the grade three, four hematology events, there were three of those, but they were equally distributed across the placebo, the low dose, and the higher dose of the ruxolitinib. Now, when we now look at uh, the baricitinib trials, what we've got here is the data from baricitinib, which was the third JAK inhibitor to be investigated in alopecia areata. And these are the results that were just published uh, recently uh, in the, the Blue Journal in the JAD uh, earlier this year. And what we can see in this study from the, the Baricitinib, which was conducted by Eli Lilly, was that there were two trials done in different centres, the BRAVE 1 and the BRAVE 2 trial. Each trial had around about uh, four to 500 patients enrolled in them, actually five to 600 patients enrolled in them. And what you can see is the results in the two trials were very similar. Now, in contrast to the early trials that were done over 24 weeks, this trial was conducted over 36 weeks. And what we're seeing with the, the red, which is the baricitinib four milligram dose, about 32 to 35% of patients were achieving a significant improvement in their SALT score. So at the end of the study, their SALT now, their overall score was less than 20. So that was de determined to be the meaningful endpoint for this study. So these are patients who have got a clinically meaningful improvement in their alopecia areata so that their SALT score now at the end of the study was less than 20. In the low-dose baricitinib, the two milligram dose was somewhere between 17 and 21%. And in the placebo group, it was somewhere between two and 6%. Now, one of the things that we often see in the placebo group is that you do get fluctuations in the natural history of alopecia areata. And some people in the placebo group get an early response uh, to placebo, but it's not sustained over the duration of the study. And so the longer the study goes, the less likely the placebo group are to get a sustained improvement in their alopecia areata, in contrast to the people in the, in the JAK inhibitors who get continued improvement over the duration of the study. And again, these are some before and after photographs. The A is the before photograph, the B is the after photograph, showing that baricitinib is achieving clinically meaningful improvement in the patients affected by alopecia areata. Now, we do have phase three results from the Eli Lilly study, and those results are just on the cusp of being presented, but uh, they, they do seem to confirm 
the results in the in the phase two study, but I won't present them here because we're still waiting for those results to be formally published. So now what we have is a number of JAK inhibitors for which there are reports of efficacy or clinical trials showing efficacy in alopecia areata. Now, each of these JAK inhibitors has different specificities. So tofacitinib is a JAK1-3, baricitinib is a JAK1-2 inhibitor, ruxolitinib is like baricitinib, it's also a JAK1-2 inhibitor, ritlacitinib is a JAK3 tech inhibitor, and brepacitinib um, is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, JAK1 tyrosine kinase, and the CPT, which is the deuterated ruxolitinib, is also a JAK1 inhibitor. And each of these JAK inhibitors has slightly different specificity in terms of uh, its cytokine target. And they've also got slightly different adverse events. And so tofacitinib is the one that seems in the higher doses to be associated with uh, thrombosis. Baricitinib seems to be associated with acne and um, some infections. Ruxolitinib seems to be more likely to be associated with thrombocytopenia, anemia, and neutropenia. And of course, ruxolitinib is mainly used in the, hematolo in the hematology world uh, for its effect in thrombocythemia and, uh, and in myeloproliferative disorders. Uh, the ritlacitinib uh, can be associated with arthralgias and pruritus, um, and the deuterated ruxolitinib has very similar side effects to the ordinary ruxolitinib, and the brepacitinib, which is not listed on this slide, seems to be more likely to be associated with the elevations of the CK. So we now have some choices and we have some choices and some considerations when we're considering treating patients with alopecia areata. And so these important considerations when we, when we select a treatment for alopecia areata are the age of the patient, the severity or the amount of hair loss and the impact that alopecia areata is having on the patient. And perhaps a fourth, a fourth consideration is where is the hair loss? And so, as I mentioned before, young women who have long hair can tie back their hair in a ponytail. They can conceal hair loss quite easily if it's at the back of the scalp, but that might be harder to conceal if it's over the, the fringe or the anterior hairline or the, the sideburns or if it's affecting the eyebrows and the eyelash. And so where the hair loss also seems to affect the, the impact that the alopecia areata is having on the patient. And so in addition to those patient considerations, we now also have to consider different um, JAK inhibitors uh, and how those different JAK inhibitors might regulate different cytokine signaling. And so when we look at the, the role of the cytokine signaling, we try and think of what are the important cytokines in the pathogenesis of alopecia areata. The main one seems to be interferon gamma, which is associated with loss of hair follicle immune privilege, which is an important trigger for alopecia areata. And so we're interested in the, the inhibitors that are going to modulate in particular JAK1 and JAK2. We're also interested in interleukin-15, uh, which is also involved in the NKG2D cells, and, uh, and that also has a role in the pathogenesis. And so, and so we have different JAK inhibitors that have different specificity for JAKs. And so when we actually look at them, so we start off with tofacitinib, so it inhibits both JAK3 and JAK1, and it's got greater selectivity over JAK2 and TIK2. Baricitinib um, has equal potency against JAK1 and 2, but much weaker potency against the other JAKs. Um, Upadacitinib, which is a medication that's been trialed for atopic dermatitis, and I think it may well have been improved in, in some countries, might have been improved in America for atopic dermatitis, but it hasn't been trialed in alopecia areata as yet to my knowledge. Um, 
is also got high selectivity for Jack one versus Jack two, um, and uh, and again, uh, filgotinib, which is the one that is being used for Crohn's disease, uh, seems to have 20 time, 28 times high selectivity for Jack one versus Jack two, and so we're going to find that there are different Jack inhibitors that have different specificity against different cytokines, and so we're going to perhaps have a bit of a smorgasbord as to how we how we try and target the pathogenesis of alopecia areata. We're probably also going to find that there will be heterogeneity in our alopecia areata patients and that some patients might respond to one JAK inhibitor better than another JAK inhibitor because there's going to be different cytokines that are dominant in the pathogenesis of their family's alopecia areata, which might be different to another family's alopecia areata. And so at the end of all of this, we, we're going to have to take our existing algorithms and modify them as we get a better understanding of the JAK inhibitors and start to develop some, some ways of choosing the JAK inhibitor for that patient. We're not at that stage yet, but I think it's reasonable to, to finish off by just talking about what is our, our current treatment algorithm for alopecia areata and how we might think JAK inhibitors as a class might actually fit into that algorithm. Now, I know this is a pediatric meeting, but I'll start the algorithm off by talking about the adults. And so when we see alopecia areata in an adult, we generally make our first decision based on the extent of their alopecia areata. And so patients with less than 20% scalp involvement is what we'd probably call mild to moderate disease. Patients with 20 to 50% would be moderate to severe. And patients with more than 50% scalp involvement are what we would consider severe. Now, the reason we've chosen 20% is the definition of mild uh, alopecia areata is that 20% scalp involvement, it's practical to do intralesional corticosteroid injections. When you get above 20% scalp involvement, then the intralesional trial, the corticosteroid injections become less practical. And so to inject 20% uh, of the scalp would probably take about 60 to 120 injections. And that's about the limit that a patient can tolerate in a, in a single sitting. So if a patient is up for the injections, and they're agreeing, agreeable to having multiple injections of corticosteroid, uh, then that would generally be the first-line treatment. If they're reluctant to have those injections or it's too many injections, then you might consider using a topical corticosteroid, either as a monotherapy or together with topical minoxidil lotion. Or you may consider, uh, if you're familiar with its use, the use of oral minoxidil as an alternative to the topical minoxidil. Now, if that patient fails to respond to those treatment or their disease progresses, becomes more extensive, then you may consider a course of uh, systemic corticosteroids, either oral corticosteroids in a tapered dose or pulsed corticosteroids. You may consider going to a JAK inhibitor in those patients, or you might consider other systemic immune modulators in those patients. And the agents that we've probably got greatest experience with are cyclosporin A, methotrexate, and perhaps even azathioprine is another immune modulator that can be used. In the patients with moderate to severe disease, where the injections start to become impractical, you might start off with topical corticosteroids, again, either as a monotherapy or together with the topical minoxidil. You may use oral minoxidil as an alternative to the topical minoxidil, if you're familiar with that, with the use of that. Uh, a tapered course of oral corticosteroids or pulsed uh, intramuscular corticosteroids, JAK inhibitors are a consideration, is our other systemic immune modulators. Of course, if the patient's now got severe alopecia areata, then you might consider going to JAK inhibitors as a first-line treatment. And the JAK inhibitors can be used, again, either as a monotherapy 
or they can be combined with oral minoxidil because there's a, a suggestion in the literature. There's a, a good case series published by, by Brett King, and I think Brett, Brett was also involved in that, showing that you can enhance or improve the response by combining the JAK inhibitors with oral minoxidil. And again, the JAK inhibitors can also be combined with intralesial corticosteroid injection to mop up a few of the residual remaining areas that haven't regrown or that are slow to regrow. Second line treatment might be oral minoxidil, um, added in um, or intralesional trimacinolone, or you might even consider in some cases adding in other immune modulators together with the JAK inhibitor or using them as an alternative to a JAK inhibitor. In the adolescent group, the adolescents, some of them will be uh, amenable to the intralesional corticosteroid injections, particularly if it's small disease and it's a few injections. If it's larger areas, then certainly you'd be uh, recommending topical corticosteroids again, either as monotherapy or together with the topical minoxidil, or you can use oral minoxidil in the adolescent group as well. If the patients fail to respond to those, then you might progress to pulse corticosteroids, JAK inhibitors, or alternate systemic immune modulatory medications. Now, in the younger children, less than the age of 12, topical corticosteroids tend to be the preference rather than intralesional trimacinolone. There are some children who will tolerate injections, but very few. Uh, oral minoxidil can also be used in this group, but you've got to use it in very low doses. Um, and so I think the smallest tablet available uh, in America is the 2.5 milligram dose. You'd want to be using much lower doses than that, a half or even a quarter of one milligram. And you may need to get the pharmacist to, to compound, compound that specifically uh, for those pediatric groups. And it may need to be done as a syrup uh, if they can't swallow the tablets. If they fail to respond to those medications, then... The, the next step is to a degree a little bit uncertain. Uh, pulse corticosteroids may be used in some patients. JAK inhibitors may be recommended for some patients, but we don't have the, the trial data on that as yet. But we do have safety data on the use of JAK inhibitors in a range of other conditions, in particular pediatric arthritis. And so I think as time goes by, there's increasing confidence amongst the, the pediatric dermatologists about the experience from the pediatric rheumatologists about the safe use of this class of agents in treatment of those conditions. And of course, other systemic immune modulators can also be used uh, in that age group, but of course they need to be done with great caution. So on that note, I think we're now at a really interesting stage in alopecia areata. We're starting to get some treatments that are being specifically developed for alopecia areata for the first time. They're undergoing high quality, industry-sponsored clinical trials that are gonna give us class one evidence. Uh, and I think that that's a major step forward for our patients. And it's a great assistance for us as clinicians because having that trial data, having that safety data gives us much more confidence when we are having the conversations with our patients, initiating the treatment and talking about the alternatives to know that these, these new medications are being investigated in a really thorough and rigorous way. It's also reassuring to know that there's a whole range of additional medications that are undergoing clinical development programs and that there's actually a whole class of JAK inhibitors that have been tested in alopecia areata. And of course, the JAK inhibitors are just one of the second messenger systems involved in taking the cytokine cell surface signal into the cell nucleus. There's also RIP kinases, tyrosine kinases, Iraq kinases, MEK kinases. There's a whole range of these second messenger pathways. And what we're also starting to see is innovation in the laboratory, looking at these alternate secondary messenger systems as a way of targeting the cytokines specifically involved in the pathogenesis of alopecia areata. And so on that note, 
I can um, uh, stop sharing my screen and, and pass you back to, to Britt and Leslie. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you so much for that um, overview. And of course, um, and now I can start my video. Of course, all of us are, you know, the Pfizer trial did include adolescents down to age 12. So I think we're all hopeful that, you know, if there's an indication, it will be at least, you know, in adolescence for that. And then hopefully some, um, some PD trials on the way. But I, I do think, um, as you mentioned, NIBS approval for um, juvenile arthritis is a nice thing to have. And there will be, you know, some more data in kids there. So um, we do have some questions here. Um, the first one is from Dr. Dipti Gupta. Hi, Dipti. Um, she's asking, what regimen for pulse steroids do you recommend using in children? That's a really tricky one. What we know about childhood alopecia areata is that it often has a slightly worse prognosis. And so what we would expect with corticosteroid use is that about 60 to 80% of patients would get an initial response, but that response would only be maintained in around about half. So that means you've got about 30 to 40% of patients who will get an initial response that's sustained over time, even after the steroid is uh, tapered and ceased. You get about 30 to 40% who get an initial response, but they lose that response. Their hair falls out again when the steroid is tapered or ceased. And uh, you get about 20 to 30% who don't respond at all. And so what you have to do is you have to make a, a negotiation with the patient and their family as to what they're prepared to try. So I don't think many of us would be happy to commit a patient to long-term steroid use. What we would be hoping for is to see whether they're one of that 30 to 40% of patients who you can just flick the switch and it's going to get the hair to regrow and it's going to be sustained over a period of time. And so it usually takes about two to four months to establish whether that's the case. And so with uh, a child, if we were going to go down that pathway of using systemic steroids, I would usually start them off on a relatively high dose of about a half a milligram per kilogram if I was using prednisone, um, a half a milligram per kilogram per day. And I'll probably keep them on that dose for about two weeks. And then I'll taper to a quarter of a milligram per kilogram for another two weeks. And then I'll taper to... Uh, an eighth um, over another two weeks. And if they get a really good response and it's sustained, fantastic. But if it starts to taper off, then you've got another discussion. I'll be reluctant to give them another course of prednisolone. You may consider in some cases using uh, one of the other uh, conventional immune modulators such as um, methotrexate or cyclosporin. But these are complex decisions. And always at the back of your mind in these young children is when do you throw in the towel? And when do you say, okay, there's you know, we, we don't have anything to offer you. Uh, and that was certainly the way in which we approached it up until recently. Now with the availability of jacks, there are many patients or parents who say, okay, we'll try the steroid, we'll, we'll give it a go. If we get that sustained response fantastically, fantastic. But if they start to relapse on dose reduction or dose cessation, then maybe that's the, the indication to go on to a jack, in, a jack inhibitor at that stage. Now, in terms of the, the dosage for pulse steroid, it's a little bit different. Um, we don't use it much in Australia, and so I don't, I don't really have a protocol I can give you, but normally it would be done, um, it might be done either intramuscularly um, at four weekly intervals uh, with tapering doses, but maybe, maybe Britta's got a, a protocol for that, but it's not something that we've, I've done in, in children. So I've mainly used oral prednisolone so that you've got a little bit more control over the, over the, the, the daily dosing 
uh, particularly if they start to get some mood disturbances or some of the other things that, that you get with young children, some hyperactivity and things like that? I do use pulse prednisone. I, um, I feel like the times when it's reasonable to consider are kind of when the ball is rolling either one way or the other, like somebody's experiencing shedding or somebody who really hasn't had regrowth is all of a sudden starting to have spontaneously re- spontaneous regrowth. For, you know, if someone comes in and they've had no hair for three years, I'm not probably going to do it. Um, but when I do it, I do um, prednisone. I do five milligrams per kilo in one dose every four weeks. Um, that is in the literature. I never do it for more than four to six months. And I make that very clear to the family ahead of time. Um, and this is a place where, um, I think oral minoxidil is really cool. Um, because I often start the two concurrently. And then I, I was just thinking, I really need to look at my cases and get them together because I do have a decent number of patients who I've been able to kind of maintain on oral minoxidil after they've finished the pulses. And maybe they would have been maintained without it, but I do feel like I have better overall results. And then I'm like always trying to throw the book at people. Like I add in topicals. I, I my feeling about alopecia areata is sort of the more directions you can hit it from the better, you know, obviously safely. Um, but you know, with each thing, maybe you're lowering that threshold a little bit. Um, so I do do, you know, combination therapy a lot. Leslie, do you, do you do continuous dosing or pulse or? So I, I mean, I typically do either dexamethasone, um, Saturdays and Sundays for four to eight weeks and use two, four or six milligram doses, depending on size or I do prednisolone. And I tend to do similar to Dr. Sinclair, starting at about a one milligram per kilogram for prednisolone and then going down weekly. But I usually only do three to four weeks because again, I also think there are kids that are gonna respond and then some that are not. Um, and so if I see that response, then I'll continue with topicals or other, you know, other agents. Um, but that's, yeah, that's my approach. And I, and I think the minoxidil is a really good addition to the treatment. And so in order to get a patch of alopecia areata re, to regrow, there's three steps involved. So in order to get a patch to fall out, there's only one step, which is immunological attack. But to get it to regrow, you've got to do three things. The first thing is you've got to initiate antigen in one resting telogen hair. And that one hair has to send a signal to its neighbouring hair to get it to start growing. And so when you actually look at the way in which the, the hair regrows in alopecia areata, if you look at a, a patch, you often see that the hair in the centre is slightly longer than the ones next to it. So it's almost as though that hair started growing about a day before the ones before, before its neighbours. And that then sends a signal to the next hair. So it's sort of like a domino effect where each hair, when it starts to grow, activates the next one. And we have a good molecular understanding of that, and that is that there's a, a phase in telogen which is... Uh, refractory and there's a phase in telogen that is permissive and so when a, a hair first enters antigen in the first 48 hours of antigen it sends out the signal and if the neighboring hair is receptive to that signal then that neighboring hair will start to grow into antigen but if that neighboring hair is refractory then that signal just dissipates and is lost and so occasionally we do see an alopecia out of people who just get one lone hair growing out of their skull that hair started to grow but it wasn't able to activate its neighbors and the, the shift in telogen from the refractory telogen to the permissive telogen so it can have that propagating wave involves WIMT and BMP signaling. 
And then the third thing that you've got to do to regrow hair is you've got to inhibit the immunological attack that stops that hair being knocked off again uh, when it starts to get when it starts to grow and gets to about antigen four. And so a lot of the immune modulators will inhibit the inflammation, but they won't initiate antigen and they won't switch telogens. Whereas prednisolone does all three. Prednisolone also causes hypertrichosis and it also affects the BMP levels. And so it allows that wave to occur. And so prednisolone is much more effective than azathioprine or methotrexate, which is similar steroid sparing immunomodulators, but they don't have that, that hypertrichotic effect that you see with prednisolone. And so sometimes adding in minoxidil to enhance that antigen initiation and to enhance that propagation of the antigen wave is a good adjunct, even if you're using prednisolone or other immune modulators or JAK inhibitors, because it's a way of enhancing that effect. And also with minoxidil, keeping those hairs in the antigen phase reduces your risk of relapse. And so we've, we've seen that as well, that we've had a number of patients who have initiated therapy with an immune modulator, have been able to stop that immune modulator and just continue with the minoxidil. And they've had a, a much lower rate of relapse compared to historical controls. Now, very hard to do a clinical trial in this, um, but we've used historical controls and we've got that signal. So we're seeing the same thing as you are in Australia. And uh, what dose of oral minoxidil do you use in adults? So in adults, probably somewhere between a half of a milligram a day and uh, somewhere between that and about 2.5 milligrams a day. So we know with oral minoxidil, the threshold for any hemodynamic effect occurs at around about 2.5 milligrams per day. So if you're using doses below that, you're going to get hair activation, but you're not going to get a hemodynamic effect. And the reason for that is that minoxidil has got two separate targets. So it's got the potassium channel, which targets blood pressure, and that's involved, and that's got a therapeutic window where it goes from 2.5 milligrams and upwards and activates the potassium channels. But there's a second target for hair growth, which is a, an amino acid pump called the ASCT1 cysteine pump. And that's got a different therapeutic window and that's activated at lower doses by minoxidil. And that pumps the amino acids, in particular cysteine, into the hair bulb. And of course, cysteine makes up about 13% of the, the weight of the hair fiber. So, so you, that's the rate limiting step in hair fiber production. So you've got to pump the cysteine into get the, the fiber produced and you've got to activate the pump to get the cysteine into the follicle. And the minoxidil does that at a lower dose range than, um, than affects the potassium pump or blood pressure. So you've got these two separate pharmacokinetic windows. Um, and so we can actually exploit that and use the oral minoxidil at sub-hemodynamic uh, doses and still get a hair growth effect. We have a question about um, black box warning regarding thrombosis. Um, for JAX, which baricitinib has, and also actually in the US, tofacitinib has qualified adults over 50 with at least one cardiac risk factor. But I think, you know, um, this is, this is a question that people are talking about. Um, and is it, is it something you talk to patients about? Do you think it's a class effect? What are your, what are your thoughts there? So my, my feeling is it, it probably is a class effect. Um, and it probably is dose-related. And so I think at the doses used in the trials, it seems to be much less of a problem. Certainly with Zeljans, it was with a higher dose initially was the warning. I'm not sure if that black box has been expanded to all doses, but it was certainly at the very high dose where with the Zeljans, I think people were taking 10 milligrams twice a day. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas at the lower doses, it seems to be much less of a factor. And I think what we tend to see in 
alopecia areata patients um, is that we're, we're often at the lower end of the dose range, partly because we're probably a little bit more cautious, but it's certainly something that would, you would keep in mind if the patient was not responding and you're sort of at that dilemma, do I increase the dose or do I add in something else? Uh, there is always a risk of that increasing the dose could be associated with thrombosis. And so that's, that's when I tend to discuss it with the patients rather than at their conventional doses. Does it, do you like think about which JAK inhibitor to use based on a patient? Like, how do you make that decision now that there are so many? Um, do you go with the pan jacks? Do you go to, you know, JAK 1-2s? Um, do you have an algorithm yet? You may, I mean, I don't know that we, any of us really do. <laughs> so, so I think I look at the baseline blood tests and if there's any liver um, abnormalities, you know, any abnormal liver functions, I'll probably go to baricitinib because that's um, excreted renally. Whereas if they've got some renal impairment, I'll probably go to tofacitinib because that's metabolized uh, in the liver. Uh, and so that might be one choice. If they've got elevated lipids at baseline, then I might go more for the baricitinib than the tofacitinib, but I think they're probably pretty similar on that effect. Um, and then um, apart from that, it's hard to say. I think baricitinib is more effective than tofacitinib. I think we actually get more patients responding to baricitinib than we do to tofacitinib. And I think that's why Pfizer haven't taken tofacitinib forward for alopecia areata, and they've actually developed alternate JAK inhibitors, in particular the ritlacitinib. And I think the ritlacitinib, it's very hard to tell because the, the trials are slightly different, slightly different endpoints. But my feeling is that the, the clinical trial data that I've seen for ruxolitinib, ritlacitinib, and baricitinib are all relatively similar. Uh, in terms of efficacy. And so then I think in terms of the choice, it's, it's, it comes down to, to comorbidities, um, baseline, baseline blood tests, and then um, it might come down to accessibility, which ones you can get your hands on. Yeah, I think it's you know interesting to think about the JAK sort of like biologics for psoriasis where we started out you know with these more broadly acting drugs and not a ton of choices. And then hopefully fast forward, you know, five, 10 years, there will be, you know, more specific targets. Maybe we'll have a better idea of maybe are there subsets of populations that are going to do better with one or the other. But I think the comorbidity thing is really cool because a lot of our patients also have atopic dermatitis. They also have vitiligo. Um, and so, you know, you do have a chance to impact two things, you know, with one, one medicine, which is, you know, always pretty fun. It's been really great to have you, Dr. Sinclair. Thank you so much for your, for your wisdom. You know more about the hair cycle than I think anybody in the whole world. Um, and it's always, it's always cool to hear you talk about it. Your expertise is, um, is amazing. And we're um, thrilled to have you a part of the series. And, uh, and thank you very much for inviting me and giving me a chance to, to travel to America virtually, if not uh, physically and in person. A big thank you to Dr. Sinclair for joining us all the way from Australia this evening. Thanks so much for attending. This is the third and final installment in the webinar portion of the Alopecia Areata series. Stay tuned for the podcast portion.